Romans chapter number 1, and I want to read just two verses to you, and then we'll have a word of prayer. And I want us to take a walk tonight through the first four chapters of the book of Romans, and I want us to look at this phrase and how Paul uses it here in the New Testament. Romans chapter number 1, verse number 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for how you've worked in our hearts already. Thank you for the souls that have been saved. And Lord, we just, uh, Lord, maybe we're greedy, but we desire more. We want more of you, more of your working and your power in this place this week. Lord, we desire more of your working in our hearts tonight. So I pray you would, you would work in us that which would bring you glory and draw us close unto, unto thyself. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we said last night, we looked at the book of Habakkuk and the prophet's crisis of faith and the establishment of this phrase, the just shall live by faith as a principle in the word of God. Now that's not to suggest that faith only became the operative principle in the book of Habakkuk. In fact, we'll see tonight that as long as God has dealt with mankind, which is all the way back to the Garden of Eden and man's creation, faith has always been the grounds upon which man could approach unto God. It's never been upon man's works. Man, we learn that lesson in Genesis chapter 4, don't we? Whenever uh, Abel brings of the, the sacrifice of, uh, of the lamb and, and gives and God's pleased and has respect unto that, and then Cain brings of the work of his own hands, the, the labor of his own hands to the Lord, and the Lord rejects it. It's always been by faith. You'll have people today that will try to suggest, and I, listen, I'm a dispensationalist. I recognize God has dealt with mankind in different ways through different periods in human history relative to the amount of divine light and truth that God has revealed to him. But uh, you'll have people that will suggest that, you know, there's all kinds of mixed up ways that people got saved and get saved and will get saved. But you don't find that in the Word of God. You find that faith has always been the means and grounds upon which a person can approach unto God. And so we looked in the book of Habakkuk at at faith as a principle, or this statement, the just shall live by faith as a principle, and how that in it and in Habakkuk's experience, we find in germ form the other three occasions, the truths that they teach uh, here in the New Testament and the usage of this phrase, the just shall live by faith. And so we talked about the principle of faith. And we'll find this phrase here in our text in two other places. We'll find it also in Galatians, where Paul will talk about the practice of faith. Or we might say pray, uh, faith as a practical principle in our lives. And then we'll find it again in Hebrews chapter number 10, and that will serve as the doorway into chapter 11, which deals at length with uh, the power of faith. We could say it another way. We could say that Romans deals with uh, salvation based upon faith. Uh, Galatians deals with sanctification based upon faith, and Hebrews deals with success based upon faith. Another way that commentators have described it, and I like this because it sticks in my mind, is that if you take that little six-word phrase, the just shall live by faith, and divide it into three equal portions, you have almost a summary of the usage of them in the Word of God. For instance, Romans presents this thought that the just shall live by faith. And it deals with the justification of man before God. Galatians deals with the just shall live by faith. And it deals with a life of faith and how that faith is not a passing notion in the life of the believer, but is a bedrock and a foundation for their relationship 
with God. And then Hebrews deals with the just shall live by faith. And it looks at what faith in God can accomplish. So tonight I want to take a few moments and look at Paul's usage of this term in the book of Romans. And I want us to look at the pardon of faith. Or faith as the grounds or means of our salvation. You know, it's not by accident that the Holy Ghost penned this book of Romans uh, through Paul on the subject of the justification of the believer. You study through history, one of the great achievements of the Roman Empire was what they called Pax Romana, the Roman peace, or the Roman legal system, or the Roman justice system. And this loomed largely in Roman life. You even find it in the book of Acts. There's times whenever the Apostle Paul, who for reasons that Scripture does not disclose, had dual citizenship. He was a citizen, of course, uh, of, of Israel, but he also had Roman citizenship. We do not know entirely how that was accomplished, but we find times that he was brought before magistrates and before kings, and on one occasion in particular, he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, that was not just a colloquial phrase. He wasn't just making a passing statement. That was a legal injunction that he as a Roman citizen was making. Every Roman citizen had a right to have their case heard before Caesar's court, if not Caesar himself, certainly uh, before his court in Rome. And so he invoked that. And Rome was centered around the idea of legal precedent and of a legal system. And, you know, when you study the book of Romans, it's it's been said before by, by commentators, and I find this to be true when you read the book of Romans, it's almost a courtroom setting. Uh, Paul is is uh, taking at certain times the the, uh, the 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 role of sort of the defense at other times of the prosecution, and and what Paul is doing is he's laying out a legal argument concerning the matter of justification by faith, or a man being made right before God, having his sins forgiven and being accepted into the family of God based upon the principle of faith. Now. Uh, we won't have time. And in fact, if you were at, at VBS last year, if I'm not mistaken, my old mind may be playing tricks on me, but I believe we studied the book of Romans last uh, year in, in VBS, and we actually went through the entirety of it. But tonight I want us to look just at the first four chapters. And in Romans chapter 5, there is a principle that Paul has established at that stage. Listen to how Romans 5.1 begins. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, Paul has fully proven his argument by the time you get to chapter 5. When he says, therefore, being justified by faith, he's saying we have established beyond any reasonable argument that faith is the way that a person comes to God and that faith is the means through which God justifies mankind. And so I want us to look at that argument that Paul lays forth in these first four chapters of Romans. And I'll tell you, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight. Uh, I hope that don't discourage you. I trust it won't. Uh, because I just want to walk through this passage, walk through these chapters, and make some passing statements about some of the things that Paul points out, and hopefully give you some structure as you study in your own time the book of Romans. And so there's three thoughts that we're going to see in these chapters tonight. I'll go ahead and give them to you along with the portions of Scripture that we'll look at. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul's going to deal with the failure of reason. The failure of reason. Now don't forget that though Paul is in Rome, he had spent time in Greece 
And Greece and Rome, you study their long, sometimes tense and tenuous relationship, they both at this time in history were considered to be places that were bastions of enlightenment and bastions of philosophy and of truth and of knowledge and of learning. And so the very first thing that Paul tackles right out of the gate is how that reason fails man in getting man to God. Then we'll find after those passages, beginning in chapter 2, leading all the way down to chapter number 3 and verse 20, that Paul's going to deal with the failure of religion. Now, it's important we define what we mean when we say religion. Because some folks, when they hear religion, they think, well, just anything that has to do with God. But religion is man's attempt to make himself righteous before God through his own ability. You won't find that word religion used in a positive way very many times in the Bible. One time in the book of James, James talks about pure religion and undefiled. But most of the time, religion as man-made attempts to please and satisfy God is always presented in a negative connotation in Scripture. And Paul's going to deal with the failure of religion. We could use the term works. We could use the term self-righteousness. In other words, a man trying to work his way to heaven or trying through his own righteousness to get to heaven. And then, beginning in chapter 3, verse 20, uh, down to chapter uh, 5, verse number 2, we're going to see the faith of reliance and how that Paul brings this all around to point to the fact that faith is the only way that a man can come to God. You know, it's interesting that these arguments would be the ones that Paul would focus on because those first three chapters, dealing with the failure of reason and the failure of religion, neatly encompass the two predominant ways that man attempts to tell himself or present to the world that he is right with God. In the day that we live in, philosophy, reason, and rationale as a religion are one of the chief ways that people suggest that they are just before God. Some people attempt to try to rationalize the very existence of God away and thereby claim that they are just With God, because there's no God to be just with, He doesn't exist, they're fine, they're okay. Others try through their own reasoning and philosophy to concoct some weird neo-pagan religion whereby the rest of the world is condemned, but by happy accident, they happen to be okay. And so, uh, you know, reason as a means of of setting a man right with God absolutely unequivocally fails, and Paul's going to show that. And then the other side, you know, you've heard me say this before, but for every mile of road, there's two miles of ditch, right? One on each side. Uh, the other side is religion. I'm going to work my way to heaven. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to make God promises. I'm going to go to church. And that's going to make me right with God. There's all sorts of iterations of this, some of them sort of neo-pagan and some of them what we would consider to be flirting with the notion of, of historic Christianity. Uh, but they all are predicated on the same thing. I can be good enough to satisfy and to please God. And Paul, likewise, is going to train both barrels on that heresy, and he's going to blow it right out of the water. So let's take a moment and look at chapter number one tonight. Let's, let's look at this failure of reason. We're going to pick up right where we left off in our reading. And Paul's going to give us a little bit of a history lesson all the way back from the Garden of Eden to the day that he's living in about man's journey in knowing God. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, he's saying the world is not righteous and all the knowledge the world has has not made them righteous. Why is that? Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, 
For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So there's more we'll look at here in a moment. But notice that Paul's first argument is that reason or rationale, knowledge, wisdom, man's intellectual pursuit of God has failed. Why has it failed? Well, firstly, because it has failed in shaping man's beliefs. You know, modern evolutionary theory, error, heresy, however you want to describe it, has really, it's ingrained a wrong-headed perspective in generation after generation of people. We have been taught that we are getting, we are on a progressive march to betterness as a species, as a creature. That things are better than they used to be. And, you know, it's interesting because we, we know that that's not true. We can look around instinctively at the world around us. I mean, I've not lived very long. I'm 35 years old. But in my life, people have got dumber. <laughs> I imagine some of you that got a little bit more of the road behind you than I do probably look around and shake your head and say, my soul, how much worse things have gotten. And yet there's this prevailing myth in society that we're not getting worse, we're actually getting better all the time. All this is rooted in Darwinian error and lies, the idea that mankind is evolving and becoming better and better and better. But that's the very opposite of the truth, and it's the very opposite of how God describes man's journey of, of uh, illumination or enlightenment or revelation. In fact, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Adam knew more of God uh, in some senses than anybody does today. I understand we know more through the Word of God, more has been disclosed in that sense, but as far as a personal intimate knowledge of who God was and as far as a, a practical apprehension of how God was, I mean, Adam walked with him in the cool of the day. He heard his voice. He And I believe you can, you can argue if you want against this, but I believe that was a theophany. I believe that was an Old Testament incarnation of Christ. But he saw God in that sense and in that semblance. He walked with him. He heard his voice. And what did, what did ancient mankind do with that knowledge? Did man progress in his apprehension and awareness and appreciation of who God is? No, that's not what happened at all. In fact, what we see is that the first six books or first six chapters of the book of Genesis is devoted to the first 1600 years of human history. And by the time you get to chapter 6 of Genesis, mankind has not transcended his earthly bonds. He has degraded and defiled and depraved himself even further, such that God says the imagination of every man's heart was only evil continually. Rather than taking what they could know of God and see of God and, and enlarging upon that, they rejected God. Notice two things that Paul points out. The first, in verses 18 to 20, is the revelation of God's person. Now, I'm going to make some clear statements about this, but I want you to notice why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's because of the next phrase, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, God's wrath is revealed not because man in ignorance has rejected him, but because man in knowledge of him has rejected him. 
How is that possible? Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. No, God made man in his image. And this is not by any means to suggest that man has some internal light that can lead him to God. But certainly we can look at even ourselves and tell there's a God that created us. We can look at creation around us and learn this. It says in verse 20, For the invisible things of Him, of God, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. That's us. (laughs) Even His eternal power and Godhead. You can look around and tell there's a God. You can look at nature and tell there's a God, and you can tell what about Him? Well, you can tell that He has eternal power. His power had to be eternal if He created all things. He had to exist before the things that he created. And his Godhead, we learn something of his character and of his personality, his meticulous nature, his interest in in his creation because of the care that he gave to creating it. So what does that result in? It says this, so that they're without excuse. Now, I don't believe that the heavens are enough to convert a man, but I do believe the heavens are enough to condemn a man. I don't believe nature is enough that a person can just look at the grass growing in the field, look at the trees growing in the woods, and say, I believe in the God that exists that created that, and that's enough. Because the Bible makes clear that there's none other name given among men whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, But I do believe it's enough for a man to look at those things and say, you know, there's a God that I'm going to answer to one day. They can't claim that they do not know. All over the world, what you'll find is that atheism is a product of a of a deranged secular society. You can go to the deepest, darkest wilderness all over this world and you'll find people that worship some kind of God. You won't go there and find... I mean, you can go to the deepest of Amazon. You can go to the steppe land of Mongolia. You can go to the heart of the Congo. And you won't find people sitting around talking about how there's no God in heaven. They all believe there's a God. Uh, it's only through the derangement of modern intellectual pursuit that a man would reject the very existence of God. So God has been revealed to mankind. We see the revelation of God's person, but then we see the rejection of God's person. Well, what did man do with that knowledge? Well, this is what he did. Verse 21, when they knew God, and it doesn't mean they knew him in a personal relationship, but they knew he existed, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful. What happened to him? They became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. A person coming to know God has much more to do with their will than it does their wisdom. Has much more to do with their their willingness than it does with their intellect. The problem was not that they didn't have a clear enough understanding of God. The problem was what they knew of God they didn't want. They rejected Him. And still today, men don't die and go to hell because they don't know enough theological catechism. Uh, All over the world, and even this week, we've got 82 kids here tonight that are going to be presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they reject Him, it won't be because they haven't been presented the truth. It'll be because they chose to reject Him. That's what mankind writ large has done. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. There we find sort of the introduction of paganism as an ideal in, in the human family. And that's exactly what mankind has done. And by the way, I would say this, that modern paganism is really not fundamentally different than ancient paganism. To sit there and say, well, this is how I believe God is because that's how I want Him to be, is in no way any better than what the pagans did when they carved a little idol and said, this is what God is. We may not be taking the time to whittle it in stone or, car- or whittle it in wood or carve it in stone or graving it in gold or in silver, but it's no different to say, well, this is how God is because I think that's how He should be. 
It's the same spirit, it's the same attitude, it's the same sin. So what happened? Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. In other words, God had revealed who He was. Instead of accepting and embracing that, they turned that on its head and made a lie. What does He mean specifically about that? Well, He says this, Worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He's not saying necessarily that in in creating the idols they did this. He's saying that idolatry is fundamentally humanism. Idolatry at its very core is not saying the idol is God because the idol didn't make itself. It, It at its very heart is saying the person that made the idol is God and the person that made the idol is the idolater. And so what they've done is took man who was created in the image of God And instead of recognizing the natural order and saying, God made me and I'm made in His image, so I'm not God, He is. They circumvented that truth and sought to worship themselves above God. The truth of God that's being spoken of here is the witness in creation, and more specifically so, in the creation of man. And instead of embracing that truth in a right perspective, they turned it into a lie and worshiped themselves instead of God. This is where reason has led mankind. There's no more irrational worldview than atheism. To look at all that God has created and say, I still believe there's no God, is completely and utterly irrational. It's not intellectual. It is foolish. I know they've professed themselves to be wise, but in doing so, they've made themselves fools. So reason has failed in shaping man's beliefs. Reason doesn't lead man to a right understanding of who God is, human intuition and intellect. But not only has it failed in shaping man's beliefs, it's uh, failed in changing man's behavior. I will tell you this, the atheist would tell you, I don't need God to be good. And yet, almost without exception, they all, to some degree or another, live completely degenerate lives. You want to know if you need God to be good? Look at a godless world and ask yourself, is it good? Ask yourself when you look at society, I'm not talking about people occasionally mustering enough, uh, you know, sort of social concern to do something kind for another person. I'm saying, do you see a consistent character in their life that professes some knowledge of who God is? The atheist would say, I can be good without God. My answer is, then show me. And their answer is, well, you're a bigot. <laughs> well, you just hate me. Amen. But uh, no, reason has failed in changing man's behavior. What resulted? Well, verse 26 tells us about the defilement of man's behavior. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. And some people would want to charge God with that. But notice the vile affections were already there. He didn't create vile affections in them. He gave them up to them. He said, if you want to reject me, I won't stop you from rejecting me. Everybody in hell tonight got their way. They all decided they wanted to reject God. Every person in hell tonight, they got their way. They said, I don't want God. I don't want anything to do with Him. And God said, well, I gave you free will, and I won't trespass on that. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. And I won't be able to stop you. God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And by the way, you'll hear people say sometimes, nowhere did Jesus ever condemn uh, sodomy or homosexuality. Uh, you'll find, though, that the very... Uh, Christ that that uh, called Paul on the road to Emmaus that spoke to him that Paul would go on to in very strong language condemn it. And he does here in Romans chapter number 1. He makes very clear that God is not okay with what they would call an alternate lifestyle or 
whatever they would describe it as. He says, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. He is describing a debauched society. And he's saying that's what intellectualism has led to. Much of what we see around us today, we often say there's never been this around us that there is today. And and, and maybe in some ways that is true. But when Paul wrote this in the first century, the world was a debauched place. I mean, homosexuality and, and, and lesbianism and, and pedophilia was all rampant in ancient Greek and Roman society. And he's pointing to things that are around him in the world. And he's saying, this is where your enlightenment has led you to. This is where your reason has led you to. He's saying, you claim that it's the pathway to transcending human bonds. I tell you that it's a highway to hell leading you down into degeneracy and into debasement. He says, reason has not changed man's behavior. We see the defilement of their behavior. And then in verse 28, he points to the defiance of their behavior. He said, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. There are certain sins that a person has to have a warped mind to participate in. God can forgive them of those sins, can change them, can cleanse them. God loves them. He died for those sins. But not all sins have the same effect in a person's life or in a person's body. You'll always hear people say, well, sin is sin. And in regards to sin being a transgression of God, well, yeah, that's true. All sin is a transgression of God. And you'll hear people say, well, the same, you know, that that sin sends people to the same hell no matter the degree of the sin that it is. And that's true. I don't believe in circles of hell or anything of that sort. But the Bible does make abundantly clear that a just God will give the recompense appropriate to given sins. And there are varying degrees of sin. The Bible says some be beaten with many stripes and some with few. The Bible describes how that not just the degree of the actual act itself, but the amount of light that God has given a person in their life, that weighs into the severity of the judgment that is poured out upon them. Uh, he, he, the Lord, he, he uh, poured out woes and, and reproach and rebuke to Chorazin and Bethsaida and all these places where he did great works in his ministry that have rejected him. He said it would be easier in the day of judgment on Sodom or on Gomorrah than it would be upon them. Why? Because they had been given more light and more truth. And there are certain sins that are more devastating to a person's life. And certain sins, the Bible talks about, Christ talked about weightier matters of the law. He condemned the Pharisees and he said, listen, you know, you tithe with mince and cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Well, why, why would they be weightier if they didn't have more severe judgments? God says they didn't want to retain God in their mind. So God allowed them because they didn't want him. He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They weren't natural. It's not things that are appropriate or, or seemly is the word used in verse 27 uh, regarding man's conduct. And by the way, we're not just talking about sexual sins here, although that obviously is the context. But there are a great many things in society that a person, their mind has to be twisted to do it, to commit those things. They'll never tell me somebody that goes out and in cold blood kills and murders uh, you know, 50 or 60 people, somebody that goes out and, and you know, uh, shoots up a school, somebody that goes out and goes on a mass murder spree, you won't tell me that's the same thing as, you know, uh, somebody changing labels at the grocery store on their canned food. I wish my mom was here. I always pick, pick at her for doing that. 
I don't believe so. I believe God can can work in their heart and in their life. I don't believe a reprobate mind means that a person cannot be saved. I do think it means that God has pulled the brakes of their conscience. So in other words, God has given our conscience as one of the means of sort of uh, restraining our behavior in some semblance. And what he's saying is they have so defiled their conscience that their conscience will not bother them anymore. But now the Holy Ghost can do what the conscience cannot. And there have been a great many people who had reprobate minds that the Spirit of God convicted them of their sin, showed them their lost condition, and only the Spirit of God can do that in a person's life. So, no, I mean, I believe God can save them. Uh, I believe that the term reprobate, somebody that has gone contrary to or gone backwards away from something, I think that he's describing how that their minds have been twisted by the sin that they have committed, and that's where their reason has led them to. He says this, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. He is not just giving a a catalog of sin. He's describing the world around And he's saying this is where human reasoning has led mankind. The gravest sin of all is verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, Paul says this is where reason has led mankind. He deals with the failure of reason. But now, Paul's writing to the church at Rome. Most early New Testament churches were a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. There were some that had been Jews that had believed on Christ, been saved. Uh, There were others that had been ranked pagans, that God had opened their eyes and they had believed on the Lord and been born again. And of course, writing to the Roman world writ large, he's going to be writing to Jews and Gentiles both. And it's almost like Paul can hear the Jewish people in the crowd saying, Get them, Paul. Get those wicked Gentiles, get those godless people, get those unregenerate, unreconstructed evil people, get them. And so Paul, he turns his crosshairs away from a broken Gentile world and he turns it upon a religious world largely comprised of Jews that uh, had claimed because of their cultural and ethnic identity and because of their legacy and heritage of, of, of Jewish religion that they themselves were not a part of this group that Paul is targeting. And so Paul deals not with only the failure of reason, but he also deals with the failure of religion. Now remember, when we say religion, we don't mean anything that has to do with God. That's how it's used in a secular way today. Somebody says they're a religious person. What they mean is they believe in God. But religion in this context, we're speaking of man attempting through his own works and righteousness to please God. And Paul points to two problems with religion as he's seen it in the world around him. The first is he deals with the blindness of religion. Religion creates a blindness in the human condition. For a person to believe they can get to God through their own good works, there are certain things that they're going to have to ignore to believe that. All sorts of people want to boast in their sincerity and honesty. Well, I'm just a, I'm just who I am, and I'm just a plain-spoken person. I just call it like I see it. But any person that believes that they can get to heaven through any means of their own works, be that baptism, be that church attendance, be that giving or charitable work, whatever it might be, has willfully developed a blind spot in their life to certain things. What kind of things is a religious person blind to or a person that thinks they can get to heaven through their own good works? What are they blind to? Well, look at verse number one. 
Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For, for thou that judgest doest the same things. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Now let me give you a real quick blast of context, because there's people who would want to misuse this verse. I would say this, number one, there's people that have an attitude, it is a cloak to them from anybody making any comments about their life, they'll say, well, don't judge me. Well, you're so judgmental. Well, don't judge how I live. Well, don't judge what I'm doing. Well, the Bible tells us that the righteous or the, the spiritual man judgeth all things. The Bible tells us we're to judge righteous judgment. So the idea of judging as far as examining or critiquing a matter is not a, 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 an ignoble thing in Scripture. It's much lauded that we are to be critical thinkers and we are to assess things around us. But remember who he's speaking of here. He's not speaking of a person that is saved, but acknowledges that they have flaws and failures in their life. I hope that's true for you. It's certainly true for me. I'm saved. I know that I'm saved. I know I'll go to heaven when I die, but I make mistakes and I do things wrong and I have flaws and failures abundant. That should not keep us from looking at someone making wayward decisions and saying, hey, don't destroy your life. Nor should it keep us from looking at our own selves and judging our own life and saying, am I living righteously? That's not who Paul's talking about. He's talking about a person who is using their religion as a veil and claiming, well, because I do good things, the bad things I do don't mean anything. And Paul points to the fact that religion, works-based salvation or religion, creates a blindness to their self-righteousness, to the hypocrisy of their position. They would claim, well, I'm better than that person because of all the good things that I do. And they're conveniently ignoring all the bad things that they do. Paul will round this around in chapter 3 by describing how that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But just to give you a little sneak preview, he points to the fact that the religious man, though he may engage in noble works at times, can do nothing about the unrighteousness of his own character, and he has to, to trust in his own works, ignore and pretend as though he does not commit the things that he does commit. Paul points to the fact, don't you know, God's going to judge all those that do those things. In other words, God's not looking at your good works and seeing if they outweigh your bad works. God's looking at you and asking this question, are you perfect? If you are not perfect, then you do not meet the standard. And something else must be done about your situation. So they are blind to their self-righteousness. He goes on in verse number four to say this. He says, or is this why you do this? In other words, do you believe you're not going to answer to God? Or maybe it's this. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? In other words, he's saying God's not condemning you because he wants you to be condemned. He's condemning you because he wants to rescue you from your lost condition. But instead of receiving that after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. 
but glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. In other words, for a man to believe his works can get him to heaven, it creates a blindness to his self-righteousness. But number two, it creates a blindness to their situation. To the fact that the problem is not that they can't occasionally commit good works. The problem is that they are broken, fundamentally lost, depraved within. And if something is not done about that sin debt, if something is not done about that lost condition, they'll die in their sins and go to hell. He says this in verse 12, For as many have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. In other words, he's saying to the Jews that would boast in the law and would say, well, we keep the law. He would say, oh, but you don't. You might occasionally, you might accidentally, you might culturally, you might conveniently, but you don't do it exhaustively. You sin just like the Gentiles sin. And that then pronounces to us what? That we are lost. The law would only have any means if we kept it. The law is only a benefit to us if we follow it. But if we're breakers of the law, it is not a wall to us, but it is a pit for us. If we, if we break it, it is not a testimony for us. It is a trap that is laid in front of us. And he says it's not the hearers of the law that are just before God. It's not just awareness that makes a man righteous. It's, it's obedience. It's the doers of the law that shall be justified. Paul does not say this to say try harder at the law. He's going to go on to describe where that leaves us. But he wants us to understand that for a person to say, I can work my way to heaven, they're completely blind to their lost situation. And then why is that? Well, look at verse 17. He says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. That's how they would have described themselves. They would have said, let's just boil it down to one phrase. They would have said, I am a good person. He says, are you? He says, thou therefore which teachest another, Teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now, remember, circumcision being deeply associated with Abraham's covenant with God and the idea that circumcision came to Abraham or his faith came to Abraham when he was in uncircumcision, not in circumcision. That was not to be a sanctifying covenant with Abraham, but was to be a symbol of the decision that Abraham had already made and the faith he already had. But now here were Jews that were saying, I'm going to heaven because I practice and follow the law. And here's the proof. I'm circumcised. I'm of this tribe. I'm a Jew. I'm in the group. I'm initiated. And he's saying, don't you know that that was an after-the-fact sign of something God had already done in substance in Abraham's life? It's never meant to be some saving or salvitic or sanctifying practice. And it means nothing if you're a breaker of the law. So here's what it means. They're blind to their sin. The problem with a person saying, I can work my way to heaven, I can be a good person. They're blind to their self-righteousness, that they are hypocrites. They're blind to their situation, that they are lost. 
and that something must be done about their sin debt and they are blind to their sin. They are willfully ignoring that they may occasionally do good things, but they do as many bad things as any other lost person around them would. So Paul points to the blindness of religion and how it's failed man. But number two, he points to the brokenness of religion. So the problem is not just that for a person to engage in works-based salvation, they have to ignore some things. The problem is even ignoring those things, it does not produce a change in their life. I've found this to be true. It's just a truism. I've examined it for years now that works-based denominations, I'm talking about charismatic groups, Church Christ, Church God, Campbellites, that crowd seems to be some of the most degenerate crowd. You look at the way that they live, you would think a person thinking they could lose their salvation would make them walk closer, would make them live cleaner, but it never does. They are also always the loosest of crowds. You know why that is? Because works-based salvation does not make a person say, here's the standard, I can reach it. What it makes them say is, if the standard is perfection, nobody could ever reach it, so I'll lower the standard to wherever I'm living. And they then, instead of Christ being the standard for righteousness, make themselves the standard for righteousness. And I'll tell you, little life hack, if you believe that however you're living is good enough, you're never going to worry about how you're living. <laughs> you're just going to always do what you want. And that's how they live. That's how they behave. But why is their religion so broken? Well, notice, first, because the condition that it leaves them in. Verse number 9, what then, Paul says, are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jew and Gentile that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. When David penned those words in the book of Psalms, he was talking about his countrymen. He's not talking about pagans that doesn't know who God is. He was talking about people that knew who God was. But their works and their self-righteousness had not produced a change in them. The problem is it doesn't save a man, doesn't change a man doesn't change his life, but then also because of the condemnation that it leaves that person in. Verse 19, he says uh, of chapter 3, I should have probably told you that at some point. You're probably flipping around your Bible going, where's that preacher at? (laughs) Chapter 3, excuse me, verse 19. He says, now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. Why would God do that? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. I'll go ahead and tell you with 12 minutes to go on the clock, I'm not going to say everything I wish I could say about this. We'd really have to study exhaustively the book of Romans, along with some other passages in the Bible, to say everything we wish we could say. But suffice it to say this, the law was not given so that a man could look at it and say, look how good I am. The Old Testament law was given so that men could look at it and say, I could never do that. I could never live that way. I could never meet that standard. It was never God's intention that Jews would boast in the law. It wasn't that the law would would be boasted in. It was that the law would break them. That they would look at it and that it would disclose and reveal to them their lost condition and their unrighteousness. We have sort of a wrong-headed perspective on the law, and maybe it's getting adjusted now that we've become such a lawless society. 
We have grown up believing that the law keeps people lawful. We are now learning this, that the law does not keep people lawful. In fact, all the law does is disclose the lawlessness of, of mankind's behavior. And Paul says the law was given so that it might condemn a man. And so when a man points to the law and says, look, I deserve to go to heaven, he's pointing at the very thing that shows him why he deserves to go to hell. When a person tries to work their way to heaven, be it through Old Testament worship or be it through whatever manner of, of cultural effort that they put forth, well, I got baptized, well, I go to church, well, I try to be a good person. All they're doing is proving by their failure of that standard inevitably that they are a lawless individual, that their works are not enough. Paul has pointed to the failure of religion. Finally, and we'll be done tonight, I think we can get through this. Have faith in me. Uh, We're preaching about faith. Have a little faith. Beginning in verse 20, Paul gives us the solution, the answer. And he deals with the faith of reliance, or you could say faith in redemption. In other words, Paul's pointed that reason fails man. Religion fails man. So how is man to get to God? Well, it's through reliance upon God's promises. Verse number 20, he deals with the premise of faith, or faith as a foundation or a premise for man's approach to God. Look what he says. Therefore... By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile alike being justified freely. In other words, the law would say condemned, but we can tell by the transformation of the Spirit of God in people's lives and by God changing their lives that God has accepted them. How is that? Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's a big $10 theological word I'll explain in a moment. To be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission or the forgiveness, the pardon, the taking away of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In other words, Paul lays out, and we've said a mouthful there just in reading it, but he's saying, you know, all the law does is condemn a man can't convert a man. And yet here I stand justified. Here you stand justified. How did God accomplish this? Well, the law was given that all mankind might be condemned and know that they are lost, that dependence upon their righteousness could not save them. But then God, rather than leaving man in that hopeless condition, sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And He lived in perfect righteousness. He kept the law, so much so that the law and the prophets testified. The Old Testament testified that He was righteous. And He never broke a single point of the law. Then God made Him the propitiation. Now, that word propitiation. There are two words that have to do with the expiation of sins in the Bible, or the forgiving, taking away of sins. The Old Testament word is the word atonement. Kafar is the Hebrew word. And it means to cover something. 
When the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, offer the the sacrifice, an atonement was made. And that blood was put over man's sins. And God would for a year be able to forbear judging them. But that forbearance of God could not and would not go on forever. And God didn't plan for that forbearance to go on forever. He made a way that man's sin could be dealt with thoroughly. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary, it was perfect blood. It was innocent blood. And because it was perfectly righteous, because it was perfectly wholly submitted to God, because it completely and fully paid the price for man's sins, man's sins were not covered, they were taken away. And that's what propitiation means. A sacrifice that takes something away. So in other words, the law could not take away our sin. All it did was amplify it. But Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law and then gave His life a sacrifice for us through faith in His blood. What can God then do? To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Why must faith be the operative means and mode of a person coming to God? Why can't it be works? Because your works, number one, are never good enough. And number two, they are never enough of them. Even were they, they could not address the sins that you have already presently committed. Were that even enough, it could not address the broken, depraved sin nature that you have. So what had to happen? A perfect individual that lived a perfect life, that in every way fulfilled the law and satisfied it, had to go and be made sin for us. He took our sin and gave us His righteousness. You know, one of the reasons this idea of of God just ignoring man's sins is naive, is because God is a holy and just God. Because He's a holy and just God, sin must be dealt with. If He is to be just, sin has to have a payment. But God also wants to be a justifier. He wants to make us right with Him. How could that happen? It could only happen through Jesus Christ. But through His death on Calvary, God can be both just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then, Paul says? What do we have to brag about? Nothing. It's excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. The law held no ability for mankind to be made right with God, and we have no excuse to boast in it. And that's not just the law of Old Testament worship. It's the law of our own good works and our own efforts and our church membership and our baptism and all those various things hold no currency with God. They couldn't pay the debt, but Jesus Christ paid the debt. And therefore, it must be by faith. He's dealt with the premise of faith. And we'll just blaze through these last few verses, all right? Uh, I'm looking at a watch right now, so I promise. He's dealt with the premise of faith. The question the Jew would ask would be, but what about Abraham? What about David? What about the Old Testament patriarchs? What about them? Paul would say, I'm glad you brought them up. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. (laughs) For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He said, I'm glad you brought up that you're a Jew. Don't you know the father of the Jews was justified not by the law, but by faith in God. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, he says, Abraham didn't work his way in. The Bible calls him a Syrian ready to perish before God spoke to him out of pagan darkness 
and called him unto himself. They'd say, well, I'm a son of David. Paul would say, I'm glad you brought up David. Because even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. The Jew would say, but circumcision. Paul said, cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for his righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. Now, I'll tell you a little hint to help you understand this. When the Bible says circumcision, write the word Jewish there. Because to the Jew, circumcision was the ultimate symbol of their covenant relationship with God. And when they talked about being of the circumcision, they meant being Jewish and all that comes with being Jewish. I'll give you a little further hint. When you write the word Jewish there, underneath it, write again and write the word works-based salvation. Because it's not just Jews that attempt to work their way to heaven. All sorts of Gentiles walk up and down these roads. Have you ever been saved? Well, I'm a good person. Well, what is that? That is that is hillbilly redneck circumcision. That's him saying, I'm good enough on my own. I'm a good person. I'm a good old boy. I mean, I'm going to get there because I try to do good things and be a good person. Paul says to that, how was it that Abraham was saved? Was it when he was a Jew? No, it was when he was a Syrian ready to perish. How was it that Abraham was saved? Was it when he was circumcised? No, it was when he was uncircumcised. How was Abraham saved? Was it when he was doing good works? No, it was when... He had been living in darkness and disobedience, but God spoke to him and God saved him because he believed God's word and God's promise. In other words, he points to the fact the Jew would say, but the Old Testament, Paul would say, let's talk about the Old Testament, because it's always been that a man is justified by faith. He rounds it out in verse number 23 down to verse 25. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. And this he's building upon what he said, that part of the reason God did this before he instituted the rite of circumcision was that men might know that they could be saved, whether they're a part of that that circumcision or not, whether they're Jew or Gentile. It's always been. It's never been based upon your Jewishness that that God accepted a person, nor is it your Gentileness that God accepts a person, but through faith. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Paul says God did it all in the way that he did it, that we might understand that it's not works that gets us there. It's faith that gets us there. That faith is what justifies a man before God. He says it clearly in chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Remember what our theme is. The just shall live by faith. Paul says you want to know how a man is justified? He's justified by faith. That's how a man is made right with God. You want to know how God does that? And he takes us through a journey in the first four chapters of Romans to show us how we can be justified by faith. 
All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, to learn it, to, to accept it, to engraft it into our hearts. Lord, to be obedient to it. Thank you for saving us, Lord, and thank you that it's by faith. If it was by works, I surely would be on my way to hell, but I'm thankful by grace we're saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Lord, I pray that you'd bless us now. Give us safety as we travel. Bring us back tomorrow night. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.